0: Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. This episode kicks off our fifth season of Insights Now. Over the course of this season, I'll sit down with a slate of market strategists and subject matter experts to discuss topics such as the implications of aggressive Fed tightening, the European energy crisis, equity market volatility, and the future of globalization to try to provide some insight into investing in this very stormy climate. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the Federal Reserve. Last Wednesday, the Fed raised interest rates by 0.75% for the third time in a row and signaled additional hawkish rate increases in the months ahead. This year, while economic momentum has slowed, the lingering effects of massive fiscal stimulus, a war in Eastern Europe, global supply chain disruptions and robust consumer demand boosted year-over-year CPI inflation to over 9% in June, with only a modest easing since then. After a slow start, the Federal Reserve is now reacting very aggressively to these higher inflation readings, boosting interest rates across the board and threatening the economy with recession. Markets have reacted very badly to this increased Fed hawkishness. And so it seems like an opportune time to have a conversation with my colleague Jordan Jackson, Global Market Strategist for J.P. Morgan Asset Management, to address some important questions on the outlook for the Fed and positioning portfolios amidst this environment of elevated uncertainty and volatility. So Jordan, welcome back to Insights Now. Glad to be here. Thanks, David. So before we dive into what we've recently learned from the Federal Reserve, let's first acknowledge how much the Fed's playbook has changed so far this year. When we printed our first quarter guide to the markets on New Year's Day, market expectations for the federal funds rate by the end of this year were at 0.9%. Today, they're at 4.4%, a massive change in expectations. So how did we get here? Well, that's exactly right.
1: Um, coming into the year, the the markets were only anticipating the Fed was going to hike rates by three 25 basis point increments this year, lifting that target range to 0.75% to 1%. Uh, as of today, uh, after uh, the uh, September FOMC meeting, uh, markets are now expecting the Fed to have to lift rates 17 times this year. Uh, so to four and a quarter to four and a half percent by the end of the year on the f- target federal funds rate. Now, how do we get here? Well, uh, the big reason is because uh, inflation. Uh, Inflation has continued to run well above uh, the Fed's 2% target, and and many market participants believe that the Fed was already behind the curve coming into the year and trying to curtail inflation. Uh, Not only that, the inflation was further exacerbated uh, by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So providing challenges to uh, the energy market, further complicating global supply chains. Um, And and I think this has helped contribute a a very nasty inflation cocktail uh, that the Fed, who already feels woefully behind the curve, now feels like they have to do more uh, to try to bring down.
0: So uh, as you say, the the Federal Reserve now looks like they're on track to deliver the equivalent of 17 25 basis point hikes this year, which of course is a huge amount. Uh, but most recently at the September meeting, they uh, raised rates by 75 basis points. And uh, as we both know, what the Fed says is at least as important as, as what they do. So uh, what did you learn from the Fed's uh, September meeting?
1: Sure, well, 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 let's work through first the, the statement, the dot plot, and then their summary of economic projections. Uh, So first on the statement, uh, not much change in the statement language relative to their July meeting. Uh, I think just notably, they reiterated that ongoing increases in the target range will be appropriate. And I think that certainly keeps the door open uh, for what we believe to be another 125 basis points of cumulative tightening uh, over the November and December meeting. Uh, Now, looking at the dot plot, um, again, big revisions in terms of expectations for both this year and next year. Um, and also we we get forecast out to 2025 uh, as well. Um, but you did see the Fed increase their target uh, federal funds rate for the end of the year to four and a quarter to four and a half percent. Uh, and then also baked in an additional rate hike uh, for next year. So lifting the Fed funds rate to four and a half to four point seven, five percent by the end of next year. Um, Looking at the uh, summary of economic projections, um, it's not surprising to see that uh, the Fed, uh, in line with increasing their rate expectations, uh, increased their inflation expectations for both this year and next year. I did think it was uh, a bit interesting uh, that they anticipate core PCE deflator inflation uh, will be higher than that of headline Uh, inflation by the fourth quarter of 2023. And and this would suggest that they recognize the more stickier components of inflation, things like housing, are going to keep core inflation somewhat elevated while this continued decline in things like energy and and food prices are going to allow for more meaningful cooling in in the headline inflation figures. Uh, So nothing really surprised me uh, too much. Um, I guess I I am a little bit concerned uh, with their inflation forecast. They they anticipate anticipate That in the unemployment rate, um, sorry, the unemployment forecast, uh, they anticipate that the unemployment rate will. Uh, tick up to 4.4% by the fourth quarter of next year and stay there by the fourth quarter of 2024. Uh, But historically, when we've seen uh, half percentage point increases in the unemployment rate, uh, it tends to be followed by further increases. And so it'd be a very challenging uh, environment for the Fed to sort of lift unemployment and for unemployment to stay at a relatively historically low level. Um, So not too many surprises there, but I think the Fed has more or less solidified uh, that they're going to continue to raise rates uh, until they feel inflation is coming back down to trend and some weakening in economic growth is a necessary evil in order to achieve that.
0: Jordan, as you point out, it's it's a it's a little unusual for the unemployment rate to go up a bit, but not keep on going up. And I suppose that has implications for the economic forecast, but also for the dot plot forecast. And and we know we know what the median FOMC member is expecting to be able to to do over the next few years in terms of the federal funds rate. But what are your expectations for the Fed's playbook going out into 2023? And do you think that markets have correctly priced this in?
1: Uh, Particularly for 2023, I don't think the markets correctly have this priced in. Uh, we just recently published our, 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 our On the Minds of Investors uh, at, the end of this, at the end of last week, um, sort of highlighting the market expectations uh, out through 2023. And again, remember, the median dot plots are year-end estimates. And so the Fed anticipates that they will uh, raise rates to 4.5 to 4.75 by the end of 2023. Uh, but the the market expectations um, are, are, are calling for the Fed to actually cutting rates in the second half of next year uh, by about 50 basis points. And, and right now, markets are anticipating a year-end Fed funds rate for 2023 at around 4%. So I do think the markets are caught uh, a little bit off guards. And it's it's typically unusual for the Fed, and, and this is something that Chairman Powell highlighted at the press conference, it's typically unusual for the Fed to hike rates uh, and then immediately begin to start cutting rates. Uh, typically, they will keep rates into the, at that restrictive level for a period of time. And, and on average, uh, that that time, It's been around nine months uh, before they decide to start cutting rates. So that's one area where the markets may be caught a little bit off guard.
0: So you mentioned Chairman Powell's press conference. And one thing he didn't talk about much was quantitative tightening at that press conference. But of course, investors are thinking about the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Do you think that quantitative tightening, or some people call it QT, is basically on autopilot right now? And is that actually providing additional tightening to financial markets?
1: I think more or less uh, quantitative tightening is on autopilot. Uh, Chairman Powell didn't make too much comments uh, around uh, the balance sheet. And I think part of the reason is because he's trying to divert attention away from the balance sheet uh, and continues to believe that interest rate policy uh, is, in fact, their primary tool in order to impact uh, or affect monetary policy. Uh, But with that being said, uh, they are continuing to wind down the balance sheet uh, at a pace of 60 billion in treasuries. $35 $35 billion in mortgage-backed securities, uh, but we were coming into an environment in which there was an abundance of liquidity. Uh, the Fed expanded their balance sheet uh, by north of $4.5 trillion over the QE period uh, lasting from March of 2020 to March of 2022. And so there's just an abundance, an excess of liquidity that's still out there. And so I do think the initial drainage of liquidity and balance sheet drawdown uh, is not having an outsized impact in terms of uh, tightening broader financial conditions.
0: Obviously, one key question is, you know, when will the Federal Reserve dial back on its hawkishness? I think everybody's wondering about that. What do you think the Federal Reserve will need to see in terms of both inflation and economic growth to begin to dial back on this hawkishness? And is there, in your opinion, is there still enough runway to actually achieve a soft landing?
1: Chairman Powell made it very clear that in order for the Fed to shift this hawkish tone, they were going to need three criteria. Uh, The first would be they would need to see below trend growth. The second, they would like to see a more balanced labor market. And the third, they would like to see clear signs that inflation is heading back towards their 2% target. Um, so in terms of the the, the soft landing, uh, I think the runway for a soft landing has narrowed somewhat, uh, but it is still possible. Uh, I think the Fed being uh, laser focused on trying to bring inflation down is a risk of them doing a little bit too much uh, in raising rates to say closer to 5% or slightly above 5%. Uh, and that certainly has narrowed the runway for a, a soft landing in, in this environment. Um, But I do think, again, they want to see that uh, below-trend growth, and that's been reflected in their summary of economic projections. It's going to be difficult for inflation, I think, to get down to that 2% level uh, without causing a a potentially more severe uh, correction in the economy or drawdown in overall economic activity. Um, But the Fed feels like, again, this is a a, a necessary evil, Um, but uh, there's certainly a risk that they they do too much to try to kill inflation and really trying to bring inflation back down to 2% too quickly. Inflation is going to come back down to 2%. Adjustment won't do it as quickly as the, as the committee would like. And so I think that's really the risk uh, that we see uh, uh, emanating in 2023.
0: If the Federal Reserve does, I suppose, skid off the runway and end up in the grass or in the water, I'm not, I'm not sure, it depends on the airport. But if they do skid off the runway, if they are, in fact, setting themselves up for policy error and we get a recession in the next 12 to 18 months, how's the Federal Reserve going to respond to that? Do you think they're going to keep QT on autopilot if they make the shift or will they shift both the QT policy and interest rates at the same time?
1: Well, it's it's difficult to say because I do think it is going to depend on the depth of the recession and which parts of the economy are, are coming under uh, particular stress. Uh, but i anticipate that uh, again we will still be even in a recession in 12 to 18 months an environment in which liquidity will still be in excess and so they may not feel the need that they would need to ramp up the balance sheet again uh, in a recessionary type of environment i do think they would probably pause a quantitative tightening and and, and and go back to their reinvestment phase where they just keep the balance sheet at a level state um, they may become they may use this sort of as an opportunity to uh, maybe allow mortgages to continue to run off the balance sheet and and more or less continue to reinvest uh, in in treasuries. So this way that share of mortgages can actually decline uh, on the balance sheet versus increase. They they certainly want a balance sheet, or most committee members would prefer a balance sheet of of treasury-only securities. Uh, I also don't see them... slashing rates down to the zero lower bound i I, I think one of the things that they do, they're doing and trying to lift rates to above four percent is they're they're trying to give themselves more arrows in the quiver uh, and I do think they are uh, them them they, they would probably see themselves going from four and a half percent say uh, in a recessionary grind down to maybe two or maybe one and a half percent on the federal funds rate still leaving um, uh, a little bit of a floor or distance uh, between uh, getting back to the zero lower bound.
0: Of course, this, this high inflation problem and, and the way central banks respond to it is, is really a global issue, not just in the United States. Um, and many, are, many other central banks have joined the Federal Reserve in tightening policy. So, can you briefly brief us on what you've seen from the ECB, the Bank of England, and the Bank of Japan? And do you think the Federal Reserve will continue to be the most hawkish of these central banks?
1: Sure. Um, so, so, we do have a slide in our guide that, that's helpful in explaining this. Uh, this is page 40, and it, it looks at um, tightening paths, uh, uh, price into both the Fed, uh, the ECB, uh, the Bank, and the Bank of Japan, uh, as well as the Bank of England and and what you've seen is is currently they they they've already been a pretty decent amount of, of tightening and it. it's it's somewhat fortuitous that we're recording this podcast today after a week of of meaningful central bank action uh, across the world uh, just this week alone or or last week uh, we've seen uh cumulatively roughly 500 basis points in tightening across a host of different uh developed market and emerging market uh, central banks um, so where are we at in terms of the the ECB, the BOE, and the Bank of Japan. Uh, Well, the ECB currently has policy rates sitting at one and a quarter percent. Uh, the markets are currently anticipating by the end of this year, they will lift their policy rate to two and a half percent. In the Bank of England, the Bank of England has their policy rate at two and a quarter. Uh, they're expected to lift rates to three and a half percent uh, by the end of this year. And really, the big diverging central bank is the Bank of Japan. Uh, in fact, the Bank of Japan uh, sort of reaffirmed its commitment to ultra accommodative monetary policy uh, last week. Um, even so, what's quite interesting, there's a bitty big divergence in in uh, them trying to prop up their currency while also trying to keep that 10-year JGB at 25 basis points. And so it's very difficult to needing to tap into your dollar reserve to try to uplift your currency uh, while also committing yourself to keeping rates essentially uh, at, at zero. Um, and so the the tightening that we've seen is is because global inflation uh, continues to be uh, run well above that of, of central bank's forecast. You now have developed market inflation as of july still running at about eight percent and you have emerging market inflation uh, running at around five and a half percent and so it does seem that the uh uh, that global central banks are 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 certainly uh, still in tightening mode but that being said, I think the Fed is closer to the end of its cycle than it is uh, other central banks. We've seen clear signs that inflation is peaking uh, in the US in the month of June. Um, the Fed may very well be done hiking rates in uh, roughly another six months from now. Uh, but the ECB, uh, the Bank of England, uh, they're still anticipating inflation uh, to move higher over the back half of this year. And so they may be very well continuing to hike rates well into, uh, well into 2023. Uh, I think with that suggests is the uh, the dollar remains somewhat elevated through the beginning of this year uh, but then as you see other central banks continue to hike rates over the balance of 2023 while the fed potentially pauses by the middle of next year uh, that interest rate differential will will potentially help uh, alleviate some of the upward pressure on the value of the dollar
0: and so the dollar could come down eventually okay so let's let's pivot over and talk a little bit about uh investing in this environment fixed incomes obviously had a pretty tough year But the sell-offs also brought valuations to much more attractive levels. So how do you weigh the risk and reward for investing in fixed income right now, so it's
1: certainly been a very challenging year for 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 bond investors. Um, you know, looking at the declines in the Bloomberg aggregate, uh, it's down by about fourteen uh, percent so far on the year. And and typically, we we tend to associate uh, bond bear markets as as koala bears and equity bear markets as grizzly bears. Uh, but this certainly feels like a grizzly bear market uh, in, in bonds. And and you'd have to go back over the last century. Um, it's really the worst year in bonds over of the last century. Uh, But for investors, it's always darkest uh, before the dawn. And uh, there is a very tight relationship between the current yield level on bonds and the subsequent five-year total return profile. Uh, Pretty much uh, current yields uh, explain uh, almost all of the return profile potential uh, out of of fixed income over over the medium term. Um, And being able to generate roughly 4.5% on the Bloomberg Ag today, uh, we feel pretty confident in saying, that um, the Bloomberg Ag would be able to generate a total return profile to the tune of around 45 to 5% uh, over the next five years. Now, if we are talking about a recession materializing, that would suggest downward pressure on yields, upward pressure on bond prices. So to a certain degree, we may be underestimating uh, the total return profile coming from bonds over the, over the medium term.
0: So we feel a good deal better about bonds overall after a very brutal year. But in terms of valuations, we feel much better about bonds in general. But can we be a little bit more specific? What do you think are the most attractive sectors within fixed income right now?
1: sure uh, i think an environment in which this fed is is still hiking rates and there's potential for some upside for them to do a little bit too much uh, i still think investors should remain shorter duration within fixed income so a short form uh core fixed income strategy uh, that can uh, allow you to uh, benefit from a rising rate and continue to to reinvest uh, in rising rates um you know many money market funds or, or cash like type products are projected to have a four percent yield uh, by the end of this year. And, and, and now, to a certain degree, uh, cash and, and short-duration d- short fixed income is a viable asset class uh, for, for, for many investors. Uh, the second uh, area that I think is, 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 is a good opportunity uh, are in municipal bonds. Um, one of the charts that we have uh, in our in our guide to the markets uh, on slide uh, 42, uh, what it effectively shows is the tax equivalent municipal curve relative to that of the nominal U.S. Treasury curve. And we know that the nominal U.S. Treasury curve is is inverted, uh, as you have the 10-year part, uh, the yield on the 10-year lower than that on the yield on the 2-year. Uh, but the tax equivalent municipal curve is incredibly incredibly steep. Um, and so particular for or intermediate or longer duration uh, municipal bonds on a tax equivalent yield basis uh, uh, investors are able to generate uh, north of five five and a half percent depending on where you shop and so that continues to be a, a high quality higher yielding uh, uh, asset class uh, and then lastly I know we've talked about sort of the potential for uh, the fed to do a little bit too much and for rates to move a bit higher uh, but I struggle still struggle in an environment of seeing uh, the nominal 10-year US treasury yield Moving meaningfully north uh, of four percent, and and right now we're trading at around three point seven percent. So. Uh, We're talking about a modest uh, move higher in in long rates, and it certainly won't be uh, a straight line. Um, And if you think about relative to where we've been in over the last decade, this is certainly some of the highest yields that we've seen in the the intermediate and longer part uh, of the curve. And so legging back to a certain extent to some intermediate to longer duration core fixed income bonds uh, also appears to be um, uh, an, an attractive opportunity set as well.
0: Generally speaking, if you were trying to allocate the last dollar in your investments into one of these asset classes, where would you put it, and then where would you fund it from?
1: I'd likely put it in a, in a short duration uh, core fixed income strategy. Again, uh, being able to sort of ride the the, the wave in, in in higher rates coming coming from the Fed. Uh, again, it gradually continue to continue to gradually uh, reinvest uh, at those higher yields. Uh, but first, let me let me take a step back. Uh, I would not be putting it in a passive fixed income strategy. Uh, I think fixed income is an asset class in which you need to be uh, active. Uh, if you think about a passive uh, fixed income benchmark, uh, it's going to allocate to the heavily, the most heavily indebted uh, parts of the market, and and you may not want that, particularly in an environment um, where where recession risks uh, may, may be brewing now where we are where we are funded from uh, to a certain extent and we we've, we've sort of started to see this or been seeing this uh, within uh, within our fund flows here at JP Morgan um, but actually harvesting losses out of some of the longer duration strategies you know long bonds have really come under pressure uh, given this rise in rates and um, being able to sort of harvest losses out of that and moving it into a shorter duration st- strategy uh, we have seen investors take a, a, a take that approach and then also moving out of lower rated quality credits to higher rated quality credits. So uh, stepping out of uh, things like high yield uh, and moving into areas of, uh, of investment grade. Um, you know, look, uh, investment grade bonds are you know now yielding a uh, close to five and a half percent in an environment with which a recession may be fairly modest. We think defaults, particularly in the upper uh, higher quality parts of the market, are going to remain uh, relatively low. Uh, and so we think that's sort of how uh, sort of the playbook uh, for fixed income investors
0: over the short term. Well, thank you, Jordan, for giving us such a a great perspective on that playbook for fixed income investors. And thank you all for listening. Please tune into our next episode when I'll be joined by Hugh Gimber, Global Market Strategist from our team based in London, for a discussion on the European energy crisis and the potential for European recession. Until then, I invite you to read or listen to my Notes in the Week Ahead podcast, where every Monday I share commentary on the latest in the markets and the economy to help you stay informed for the week ahead. For even more timely insights, you can also follow and subscribe to my content on LinkedIn. This content is intended for
1: information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. JP. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of JP. Morgan Chase and Company and its affiliates worldwide.